Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Matthew 11, or no, excuse me, 1 Romans 2, 1 to 11. We're continuing through Romans. This is the word of God. It's eternally true. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For that, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation to the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. This is the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul here is the prosecuting attorney. And the first defendant has been the man who is arrogant, profane, sexually perverse, wicked, and idolater, and unapologetic. He is the utter pagan who has no fear of God and lives his life defying all good, embracing all evil, fearing no judgment. Although he is unaware of the fact God has given him over utterly, and he faces nothing but torment in this life and eternally. Blithely, he continues down his path on the highway to hell, and he sings about it. He does not recognize that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. He does not recognize that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Apostle Paul's opening argument against this defendant concludes with his point-by-point specification of the man and his woman's sexual crimes. As the incest of the Corinthians was the perfect illustration of the wickedness of their pride, so the lesbianism of the defendant's woman and the defendant's own sodomy is the perfect illustration and summary of his pagan wickedness. Because of his pride and idolatry, God has given him over to the most wretched and shameful sexual acts, to degrading passions that leave a man so degraded that he is shameless in his shamefulness. And then, all of a sudden, 
the Apostle Paul hears the courtroom behind him saying things like, yeah, and you tell them, Paul, disgusting, aren't they, Paul? Kids, plug your ears, close your eyes. You don't need to see or hear about these awful people. Mama, take the kiddos home and I'll do my civic duty and sit here through the end of this obscene presentation Paul was giving. I'll sit on the jury. I'll vote for the death penalty. But you go home and let the kids ride their bicycles, play with their dolls, watch a movie. This stuff isn't for women or children. Degrading passions in their women with each other and the men with men and all that. Go home, sweetie. Take a shower, clean off the dirt. Even hearing about these people is sickening. All right, now, Paul, let's get this dirty work over with, okay? I'm ready to deliberate and bring you back the verdict you want. Let's get to it. This is what the Apostle Paul hears the courtroom behind him saying. All of them listening to his prosecution of pagan Gentile, goy, debauched, lawless, godless, fearless, unwashed, and uninstructed defendant who is standing in front of him. But this isn't a show trial with a predetermined verdict that leaves the courtroom feeling pristine. In their safeness with the women and children home cooking and playing. This is the courtroom of God Almighty. And the Apostle Paul is as determined to prosecute the courtroom itself as he is the prisoner. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul really isn't nearly as concerned about the prisoner, the defendant he first addresses as he is the people there in the courtroom that are sitting listening to him. The Apostle Paul is not writing the pagans in Rome. Did you hear me? He's not writing the pagans. He's writing the Christians of Rome. And this is not a morality play, and it's not a show trial. It's not intended to reinforce superficial morality that separates the goodies from the baddies by having the goodies avoid this, the baddies do in practice, saluting the flag and singing the proper songs in this way. Now then, hearing the self-righteous amens, and you tell them, Paul, behind him, here with verse 1 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, he flips around and he says, now then, you. You see this? But actually, it's not what he does. Because the you is singular. What he really does is he turns around and he faces the Christians in first Christian church in Rome. And he says, now then, you, 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 now then, you. Do you understand this? Now then, you. At this point, because a recurring theme in my mind 
of the church in America today is the unbearable lightness of being. If you read the commentaries, they all fall all over themselves trying to explain away the singular you. And then, of course, they try to explain away even the plural you, which it isn't. And, and, and you know what they're trying to do is they're trying to keep the people that they're writing to that by their commentaries from feeling the weight of the accusation, right? Right? Isn't that what we all do? I'm not talking to you. You know how you come out with a prophetic word and you, you always preface it with present company excluded, right? So how do they do this? I mean, it's real clear. Now then, you. Well, you have, to come, you have to come up with a way that the finger isn't pointing this way, right? Or you can't just say, you know, well, if you point that way, you go one finger, five, five, four, finger, whatever that dude is, you know. You got four, you know, if you point, he who points has five or four, four fingers. How does that thing go? Three. The way they do it is, he says, well, this is the Apostle Paul still preaching the gospel. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing here is actually representing to the congregation of good Christian people what he would be saying if he were addressing you, 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 and you out in the public square in Rome. You know, he's, he's doing a play of gospel preaching in front of the church so that they understand what his gospel is. And so, don't worry, present company excluded. But of course, that's bunk. And it's bunk because that's the kind of thing that we do to the Bible when we're Pharisees. We, we, we atomize it into this and 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 this. And it has nothing to do with the way people receive sermons and letters. Nobody in their right mind seeing the singular you would think not applicable to me. Why? Well, because all of us have been looking at what he's writing and trying desperately to stay ahead of him. We're all trying to say, it's not me. How could you read Romans 1 without desperately trying? I mean, even if you look at the way homosexuals try to pervert Romans 1, and make it not about them, even the way they do it, they're proclaiming their wickedness. Because what they end up doing is saying it doesn't apply to homosexual lust and to homosexual actions. What it applies to is, is, is homosexual rape and homosexual prostitution. Well, why do they do that? Well, because they're trying to justify themselves. Do you see this? It doesn't matter who reads Romans 1. We try to justify ourselves and say it doesn't apply to us. And so right at the moment when the Apostle Paul absolutely destroys the pride and idolatry and sexual decadence of man, the Apostle Paul precisely at that moment says, now then, you, you, you. And guess what? If you're a Christian, he has your attention. 
because you know what your heart was like one millisecond before that you came out. You know you were feeling so good about yourself that you haven't been given over to degrading passions. You know, you were sitting there thinking to yourself, I'm so glad that my degraded passions are not unnatural. And it's just, this is who we are. God is so good, but he's good precisely at the place where we don't want him to be good. And that is his greatest goodness is loving us precisely the way we are and not allowing us to lie to ourselves. And this is the most precious gift that God gives to us. And if you're a Christian, you love it. If you're a Christian... You love it. If you're a Christian, you love it. Because you've lied to yourself so much. Your mother lied to you growing up. Then the guy that spoke at your graduation ceremony lied to you. And you're, everybody's always lied to you. They've always told you you're actually wonderful and anything you put your mind to, you can do. So you put your mind to being holy. And, and where did that get you? You worked hard at being holy. You worked hard at doing the right thing. And it got you nowhere. And slowly, over time, you began to realize that the whole point of the law is to reduce you to despair. Because only a desperate man pleads for God to save him. So in his kindness, the Apostle Paul begins the second chapter. There were no chapters. This is just the middle of the letter. He says, therefore, you. And then he says, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. And we're not done sort of arguing with him, you know. But we have to admit that we were passing judgment. He says, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And, you know, at that point, we're willing to cop to the you, right? But we're not willing to admit it's the same things because it's not the same things, you know? I just like heterosexual nakedness. I don't like homosexual nakedness. You know? And so there we are again. You know, chopping and slicing and dicing. And putting ourselves on the side of the goodies and the baddies are over here, you know, over there, right? And so this is who we are. We're always slicing and dicing in a way that we end up being able to swallow it. And so we say, no, I don't practice the same things. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a heterosexual sinner. We had a couple that left two weeks ago when I was preaching on this. You all saw them walk out. And the man went home and wrote a review of us on Yelp. Okay? 
And the review was all about, you know, the preacher was up there and, and, uh, and he was just, I forget what he said, consigning everybody to hell and, you know, it was all about how good we were and everything, you know. Well, of course, in God's providence, he left right before I said, we are all homosexual. But who knows, maybe that was the point at which he left. I'm not quite sure. But listen, the whole point of God's word is that if you read it, if you're under it preaching, it exposes you. The secrets of your heart are exposed. And so he says, you practice the same things, and you say, no, 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 I'm heterosexual luster. I'm not a homosexual luster. And I say to you, okay, all right, you ready? Okay, so you apparently know that there's something even more perverse about being a homosexual luster, right? We all go, yeah, 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 we've heard that before. Okay, okay. So if you know that there's something wrong with homosexual lusting, so that you should stick to heterosexual lusting, and you lust, let me ask, are you better or worse? The Apostle Paul says the same thing. Do you realize that the Bible says, to whom much is given, much will be required? Do you realize this? Do you realize that every single time you sit under the preaching of the word, you come under more condemnation if you don't repent? Do you realize that this is nothing but a heightening of risk to come to church? It's just an incredibly risk-embracing exercise. Because here, the secrets of our hearts are exposed. Here, hypocrisy is condemned most severely. God's judgment of hypocrisy will be infinitely worse than God's judgment of pagan homosexuality. Do you understand? You do understand. Listen to Matthew 11, verse 21. This is the recurrent theme of Jesus' ministry is saying what I just said. Listen to this. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. His miracles exposed that this was God in their midst. And he began to condemn the cities where most of his miracles had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon the day of judgment than for you. More tolerable. It will be better. San Francisco will be better than Wheaton. Do you understand? And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, to hell. For if the miracles that occurred in, had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You. You do the same. God, God is not partial. 
And so he continues. And what does he say? He says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. It's interesting. He doesn't stop there and argue with them. You know, he doesn't stop and say, Now, I know you don't really think you do the same things. No, he assumes the point. Calvin, in talking about this, says now, you know, a good prosecuting attorney will establish the truth of the thing that he claims. The Apostle Paul doesn't bother with that here. Nah, nah. Because why? Well, because he knows that those who are under the Spirit of God will immediately grant the truth of his accusation. Okay? So if you're not there, it's because the Holy Spirit has not given you a soft heart. He doesn't care. He's done. He's moving on, right? And he just assumes you're there with him. He says, we. What's this we, white man, right? We, those of us who are under the Spirit of God, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Okay, Paul, we already got it last verse. You don't need to repeat it, right? At this point, Calvin says, you know, He says, the Apostle Paul is being very simple and direct. This is not the place that we're trying to be taught rhetoric. In other words, don't be scandalized by the Apostle Paul being so simple and direct in what he says. Imagine that. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Oh, man. That has to be one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. What is the kindness of God all about? Well, it's all about babies and apple pie, and it's all about, you know, a good job, a nice pension fund. It's all about tenure. You know, it's all about, you know, those pheromones and and, and that stuff in the chemicals that comes to your brain and makes you happy to be alive. Vitamin what? Vitamin E? A? One or E? D, vitamin D, right? The kindness of God is being an American citizen with an American passport. The kindness of God is good pork. I mean, good pork, hard to find. Now, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. That's so precious, guys. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. (laughs) Isn't that precious? It's so precious. There's no greater gift we want for our children. My son was disciplined by the elders. And guess what? He repented. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Don't you take that kindness for granted. Don't you think that his preaching of judgment and and fear of God and, and hypocrisy here is anything but the kindness of God to you. It is the kindness of God to you. And it leads you to repentance. Okay? 
And listen, repentance is the most freeing thing in all the world. You know, I really don't care what sins people commit, honestly. I mean, this is the truth. Sometimes I'll sit in counseling and wish that they'd commit this sin instead of this sin. Because, you know, sometimes with men, I think, at least be a man about it. Don't be a wuss in your sin. You know, it's like Luther saying, sin boldly, (laughs) you know. I don't care what sins you commit. What I really care about is if you repent. Because there is no other steady state for a Christian than a steady state of repentance. Because without repentance, there is no kindness of God in your life. And if you've lived the sort of life that has allowed you to escape repentance as a Christian, you're not a Christian. Because the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. This is what Jesus said. And so if you think that you can find a church where you don't have to repent, Knock your socks off. Find it. But there will be no kindness of God there. None. Because the kindness of God leads you to repentance. I can remember the Sunday I came in here to preach, and as I turned onto Enright Road off of airport, uh, and I remember saying this in my sermon that Sunday morning, I just was completely, completely filled with revulsion at everything I am. And then I have to get up and preach. And what a precious gift from God that was. And and I know if you don't have the kindness of God in your life and you hear me say that, you think, well, this is a church for people who are like, you know, self-loathing. Well, I guess that's the way a pagan would view repentance. But listen, it takes faith to repent. The kindness of God is what causes us to repent. The kindness of God is what causes us to repent. Because why? Well, because we know he's our daddy. And we know he'll receive us. We know he said to us, no one who comes to me will I ever cast out. No one. And that means he won't cast me out. (laughs) And if he won't cast me out, Honey, you don't have to worry about yourself. You don't have to worry. Do you know what the final statement of our text is? At the very end, go to the end, please. There is no partiality with God. In the, in the church in America today, there are tons of people that think that they can modulate God. And typically they do this through the sacraments and through crossing themselves and through external rites. And this is what the Jews were doing at the time. They had all this, all this superficial, complicated worship, law-keeping kind of stuff. And today in the church, it's filled with you know, the right kind of baptism, the right kind of Lord's Supper, the right kind of liturgy, the right look to your baptism, all this other stuff. And this stuff is wicked because it, it kills heart religion. 
And there's only one way to stand before God, and that's with your heart open. And if your religion causes you to manufacture a whole bunch of specifications that if you keep will please God, and I'm not saying that all worship is equal at all, but if you think that it's your sacraments, you think it's your pilgrimage, you think that it's you praying to receive Jesus, if you think God will ever take anything in exchange for your heart and for day-by-day repentance until the day you die, you have a false religion. It's false. Because the steady state of a Christian is repentance. And there's no better worship of God than repentance. Because true repentance acknowledges his glory and his holiness. Let's pray.